silly childhood game, Uncle Wiggly. I cower in abject horror, approaching space number 109, home of the gaunt and haggard shell of the skeezics. So begins the song, The Skeezics Dilemma, by Christian thrash metal band Tourniquet. It's a song about child abuse. It's a song that draws imagery from a vintage board game called the Uncle Wiggly Game. The Uncle Wiggly Game is based on a series of short stories by Howard Garris. In the books, Uncle Wiggly is an elderly rabbit who is routinely pestered by a recurring group of characters with names like Pipsisiwa, Skeezix, the Bazumpus, the Krozakus, and the Scuttle Magoon. The characters in the stories were adapted into a children's board game, and when a child is playing the Uncle Wiggly game, they never want to land on space number 109 because that's where Skeezix, the crow-like, gaunt and haggard character lives. And when you land on space number 109, you lose one turn. So children do not like Skeezix. And when they play the Uncle Wiggly game, they don't want to land on space number 109 because that's where the gaunt and haggard Skeezix is. Kids don't want to land on space number 109 because that's where the dreaded crow-like Skeezix lives. So with this background in mind, let me read some of the lyrics to the song, The Skeezix Dilemma. This song talks about how children who are physically abused cower in fear of their father or mother who abused them. They cower in fear of their parents who have become, in their mind, like the dreaded Skeezix. Silly childhood game, Uncle Wiggly. I cower in abject horror, approaching space number 109, home of the gaunt and haggard shell of the Skeezix. The emaciated figure, harboring the greed of a thousand, his mission now is complete. The arboreal king of misery and woe. Skeezix reposes high on a knotty forest crag, and the child still tries his best to stay in the game. He draws a card and all his fears come true. Advance to 109. That's what you have to do. When Mr. Skeezix becomes Mr. Jones, or you, or me, just think of what it does to wreck a child of two or three. They know and feel much more than we will give them credit for, and all they want in life from you is love and nothing more. When painful eyes begin to cringe, when you walk through the door, remember children are a gift of love sent from the Lord. What a vivid picture of child abuse, be it physical or verbal. The abused child finds him or herself dreading anyone who abuses them. They fear approaching space number 109 because that's where the dreaded Skeezix lives, where their abuser lives. I could preach about against I could preach against child abuse this morning and I am right now. It's wrong. 
It should not be. And if you're involved in any way with child abuse, either as the abuser or the victim, please get help. Please reach out to someone and get help. But our passage today is dealing with our relationship with our heavenly Father. And I'm afraid that many of us have a skewed understanding of what God the Father is like. For many of us, our view of God the Father is based on our view of our earthly fathers. For many of us, we think that God the Father lives in this constant state of being disappointed with us. For many of us, God the Father lives on space number 109. For many of us, God the Father is the skeezics. This is nothing new because Christians have always struggled to believe and embrace the love of God that comes to us in the gospel. Christians have always struggled to live confidently in God's unfailing love. And Peter's audience certainly struggled with this, which is why he is writing to tell them about their heavenly father and the links that their heavenly father went to in order to redeem them. Far from being a skeezics, Far from being a skinny crow-like character who is out to get people, God the Father is generous and outrageous with his love. He lavishes his love on his children. And with good reason. Because this has always been his plan. From eternity past, it has always been his plan to lavish his children with his love over and over and over and over again. And so our big idea is flowing out of the character of God this morning, and it's this. Don't run away from home. Don't run away from home. What I mean is that when you are burdened with the guilt of your sin, The last thing that God wants for you is for you to run away from him. The last thing that God wants for you is for for you to run away from home like a little child. And isn't that what we all do from time to time? We get burdened with our shame. We get burdened with the guilt of our sin. We feel condemnation. And instead of running to God, we run away from him. We run away from home when our Father wants us to run to him. The last thing on earth that God desires is for you to run away from him. Why? Because the whole reason he sent his son Jesus was so that he would be glorified as he liberates slaves like us from the slave market of sin. And that's why Jesus came, to set us free so that we would run to God and not from him. Running to God and feeling the warmth of his fatherly embrace When you are dirty and smelly and stinking of sin, to feel the warmth of his fatherly brace when you are dirty, smelling, and stinking with sin, that is the glory of the gospel. 
And that's what we'll see in our passage today. We'll see Peter giving us the reason why we, as broken sinners, stinky, smelly sinners, can live confidently in God's unfailing love. And we can do that because God the Father is not fickle with his love. God the Father is not like a teenage girl. Not dissing you teenage girls here, okay? But God the Father is not like a teenage girl. OMG, she's my BFF, and then the next day, I hate her guts, I can't stand her. God is not fickle like that. He doesn't change. He loves you, Christian. You don't have to run from him because he's not fickle with his love. He's not wishy-washy. You don't have to fear him as if you were playing the Uncle Wiggly game and you were approaching space number 109 and you're on your way to see the skeezics. You don't have to fear him that way. You fear him a different way. Look at verse 17. Hear the words of the gracious God. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We don't fear the Lord the way a child fears skeezics. Our fear is different. As we saw last week, the gospel is the end of that kind of fear. The gospel is the end of the kind of fear where we live in dread and terror of God. We never have to fear that he will turn on us because of our behavior. Now, please let me say that again, because how many of us actually believe this? We never have to fear that he will turn on us or will turn away from us or be disappointed with us because of our behavior. Now, how many of us live like our behavior determines our relationship with God? How many of us live like our behavior, what we do and what we don't do, actually determines how God feels about us? What determines how your heavenly father feels about you is his son, not you. What determines how your heavenly father feels about you, Christian, is his son, not you. His son's obedience, not your obedience or disobedience. It's his son who determines his affections and feelings towards you. What determines how your heavenly father feels about you is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus pleased his father for you. That's the good news of the gospel. And yet we have perverted that and twisted that and we've made it about us. Instead of Jesus being the center of our Father's affections for us, we have made it about us. Instead of Jesus being the center of our Heavenly Father's affections for us, we trade that and we make it about us. We strip Jesus of his glory when we make how God deals with us based on our performance and our behavior. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Stick Jesus in the corner over there. Stick, you, you go over there. 
do this, do that, don't do that, do this. Think about it. It's crazy. We've, we, instead of the father saying, how I feel about you is what my son has done for you, we say, no, thank you. I want you to deal with me in the way I act. It's crazy. Think about that. When we do this, it is straight up crazy. We have issues. It's totes cray cray, as the kids say, to think that God would rather be focused on our behavior than the behavior of his son. It's totally crazy to think that God would rather hone in on our performance than the performance of Jesus for us. It's totes cray cray to think that God would rather set his focus like a laser beam on us and our behavior rather than on the perfect obedience of his son. As if God wakes up in the morning, if you will, and says, I can't wait to see how my kids are behaving or disbehaving. I have a feeling, you know God doesn't sleep, but you know what I mean, that when he wakes up, the first thing on his mind is his son. Not us. You're staying in line. It's his son's obedience, his son's behavior that has captivated his heart. Not us. It's crazy to think that way. And that's why Peter mentions that we are dealing with a loving heavenly father here. And that's why Peter will mention the sacrifice of Jesus in this passage. Because this is where God's focus is. And it's where our focus should be. Our focus should be on the gospel. Because it is only in the gospel that we move away from God as an angry judge to a loving heavenly father. Because of the gospel, we are now dealing with a father, not some stern judge slamming down a gavel, shouting out our sentence in a courtroom. We are now dealing with a father who judges us, Peter says. Present tense. Not like a courtroom judge, but as a father. He judges us, as we saw last week, meaning he trains us, coaches us, he helps us, he he disciplines us, he loves us, and he does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need in order to keep growing in eagerness and holiness and tenderness. And so what does it mean then to fear the Lord or to do as Peter says here in verse 17, to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you call on God as Father? This is what it means. It means that we fear him in the sense that we honor him. We want to please him. It means we don't want to break his heart or grieve him. And Martin Luther is very helpful here when we talk about fearing the Lord. Luther made an important distinction between what he called filial fear and servile fear. Servile fear according to Luther, is, is the fear, that, the kind of fear that a prisoner has when he sees his torturer open the prison cell again, coming to torture him. Servile fear is the fear that a criminal has when he sees the executioner coming to chop off his head. But filial fear is this family fear. It's the fear that a son has for his father. It's the fear that a child has for their parents. They don't want to offend. They don't want to disappoint their parents. Filial fear means that we hold God in this holy, childlike awe. 
And Martin Luther's friend Philip Melanchthon had similar thoughts, probably because they sat around and drank beer together. They liked beer. Luther said, if you don't have water, then you can baptize in beer, brandy, milk, whatever you got. He, he said he'd love to baptize people in beer. If I'm ruining your image of Martin Luther, I'm sorry. But I imagine they sat at the pub once and talked about, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Servile fear or filial fear. Here's what Philip Melanchthon, one of Luther's friends, said. Servile fear is a dread without faith And it actually runs away from God. But filial fear is a dread to which faith has been added. Which steers between these two kinds of dread and comforts the heart and approaches God. And in a sermon on Psalm 2, Luther said something very similar. He said, those who fear and rejoice, that is, they believe that they are justified by the sole mercy of God in favor of Christ. They are truly sons of God who fear God, not as a tyrant, but as children fear their parent with reverence. For they temper fear of God with joy and hope. And they do not lift up their mind and go off in presumption. They remain in humble reverence. So to fear the Lord does not mean that we fear him the way a prisoner fears his torturer or fears the executioner. To fear the Lord means that we fear displeasing him like a child does with their parents. We temper fear of God with joy and hope, which is exactly what Peter says in verse 21. We trust, we have faith in what Jesus has done for us, and therefore we have hope. And what joy, and what hope, and what trust is ours when we realize that we, as his children, can never, ever displease our Father. What joy is ours, what hope is ours, what trust and what faith is ours when we realize and we come to grips with and we really believe that the gospel is telling us that as his children, we can never ever displease our father again. Think about this, because it's making some of you uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like that thought. Think about this. To fear the Lord means that we fear disappointing him. But the good news of the gospel is that we can never disappoint our Father. To fear the Lord means, I fear disappointing you, Father. I don't want to. But the good news of the gospel is that we can never disappoint our Father. Why? Because of the gospel pronouncement. Because of what God said to Jesus in Mark 1, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in the gospel, that announcement becomes yours, Christian, that Jesus pleased the Father for you And now you have been credited with his righteousness. You are blameless in his eyes. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And tell me, when God the Father sees his son Jesus, does he ever get disappointed? When he sees you, Christian, he sees Jesus. And that means that you can never disappoint him. That is liberating. Now, we may at times grieve his heart, John Owen is right when he says that some believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. 
and they think it a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And they think, and they think herein they do well. It is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. Some, some Christians are afraid to have good thoughts of God, and they think, I'm doing the right thing. If I view him as an angry father ready to snap at me, I'm doing the right thing. I must be obeying. I must be doing the right thing. And we think that's good. It's wrong. It grieves his heart. So to grieve the spirit, I think Owen is right. The main way that we grieve the Holy Spirit of God is when we doubt God's love for us. That's the main way we grieve the Spirit. Because over and over again, in both the Old and New Testaments, it keeps telling us the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Over and over and over again, the Bible is hammering home the point that God loves sinners. God loves his children. And when we don't believe the thousands of promises and verses that tell us over and over again that he loves us and he shows that through the death of his son, then that grieves his heart. But we also see in Isaiah 63.10 where Isaiah says that Israel grieved the spirit. But the verses that come right before that talk about God's love and mercy in saving Israel and redeeming them from Egypt. And then it says they rebelled and turned away. That grieves his heart when we turn away from his love and we don't believe it. The second way I think that we grieve God's heart is when we don't live in harmony and unity in the church. Ephesians chapter four is where you have the phrase Paul saying, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. The context of of Ephesians in chapter three, Paul says it's through the church that God displays his wisdom. Then he begins, and the whole Opening chapters are about Jew and Gentile being united together, that division no more, there's harmony. He begins chapter four and he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then the verses that couch the phrase, do not grieve the spirit of God, are all about community relationships. Don't speak words that tear people down, speak words that build people up. Don't steal anymore, but work hard so that you can contribute to people and share with others who have need. The whole context is about community and when we don't live in unity with one another and love one another that grieves his heart why because Ephesians 3:10 it's through the church that God is displaying his glory so i think those are the two main ways that we grieve God's heart when we don't believe his love and when there's when there isn't unity and harmony and peace in the church so we grieve the spirit when we doubt his love we grieve the spirit when we live in Disharmony. We grieve the Spirit when we slander Him by not having good thoughts of Him. So we may at times grieve the Spirit, yes, but we can never disappoint God. We can never let Him down. We can never dash His hopes. We we never make God throw His hands up in the air, shake His head in disgust and frustration, like, God, I can't believe these people. That can never happen. Why? Because we live under the banner of his love and devotion. The love and devotion that he has for his own son, Jesus. That's the gospel. Not only is God not mad at you, Christian, he's not disappointed in you either. He loves you 
just like he loves his own son. He loves you just like he loves his own son. You live under the banner of his love and devotion and the affection that he has for his own son, Jesus. That means then, don't run away from home. You don't have to run from your father. You can call on him. You can run to him. You don't have to avoid him as if he were the skeezics perched high on a knotty forest crag. You don't have to fear drawing the card that says advance to space 109. You don't have to run from your father. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what Peter is about to tell his readers. He's about to say, Come on, you know this, guys. You heard the gospel. He says in verse 12, people brought the gospel to you. You know this. You've heard this. You know you shouldn't run away from home anymore. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's reminding his readers of what they already know, and he's doing that to recalibrate them. He's about to remind them of the gospel once again. And when he does this, he knows this is going to help gird up the loins of your mind, which is what I told you to do in verse 13. Peter is reminding them of what they already know, that they have been ransomed and redeemed from the feudal way of life handed down to them from their fathers. Now, the idea here is that they have been set free from a life of idolatry. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, vanity or feudal ways or empty ways are, are always connected with idolatry, worshiping idols. Peter says, that's what you used to do before you came to know Jesus. Before regeneration, he's saying, we lived empty lives. We worshiped idols. We worshiped ourselves. We worshiped others, the way we lived, numerous things before we came to know Jesus. But then Peter says, we were ransomed from that. We were redeemed. We were set free. We were liberated from that bondage, from those chains. Now, no doubt Peter has in mind the slave markets that were common in the Greco-Roman world. Back then, a slave could be purchased out of slavery by a friend or family member. So if you were a slave, a friend or family member could purchase you from your master purchase you out of that slavery so that you could be free. And Peter is saying here that this is exactly what happened to believers. We were locked in chains. We were up on the auction block. We were for sale in the slave market of sin. And God the Father came and he purchased us. And he said, mine. And he purchased us not with money, but with the precious blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, the precious blood of his own son that he's crazy about. We were purchased out of the slave market of sin. 
by the precious blood of Jesus, who was just like a spotless lamb that would have been offered up in the Old Testament for a worshiper. Surely, uh, this is the imagery Peter has in mind. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing towards Jesus, substitutionary atonement. So Jesus was without spot and without blemish like an animal in the Old Testament had to be in order to be accepted by God. What that means is that he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He lived a life of total obedience to the law of God. He never once broke any of God's laws And yet he went to the cross and suffered as if he had broken every law 10 million times. And he did that for sinners like you and me. And that's exactly what verses 20 and 21 tell us. So look again. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you see the words there, for the sake of you? Those are beautiful words, for the sake of you. If you're looking to get a tattoo, that's a great tattoo right there, for the sake of you. What beautiful gospel words have come off of Peter's lips, have come off his lips to the guy Sylvanus who's writing this letter and then being written down and recorded for us. What beautiful words. In fact, the Greek could be worded this way because the Greek word but there can be translated as but or and. I think it should be translated as and so that it reads this way. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world for us. And Jesus was manifested in these last times for us. That's good news, Grace. So Jesus was foreknown by God Just like believers, Peter mentioned that in verse two, meaning it was God's plan to send Jesus to save sinners like us. It was God's plan for his eternal love for his son Jesus to spill over to us so that we get swept up in that love. In eternity past, God the Father covenanted with Jesus in the spirit to create a people whom he knew would sin. And then Jesus covenanted with the Father and the Holy Spirit to become a man and to redeem those fallen people. And the Holy Spirit covenanted with the Father and the Son to apply Jesus' work of redemption to those sinners that he came to redeem. And those that Jesus came to redeem are then God's gift to his Son. You, Christian, are God's gift to his Son. And it was all ultimately for God's glory. As Peter says in verse 21, God gave him glory. Our being liberated from the slave market of sin, our being set free from the slave market of sin is for the glory of Jesus. But, and here's where I'll use that conjunction but now, but it was also for us. Please don't miss this. This is why Jesus came. 
He came for us to redeem us, to liberate us, to free us so that our faith and hope would be in God. The eternal plan of God, 10 billion years back into eternity, was to save sinners. This has been the heartbeat of the triune God for all of eternity past. And since Jesus paid it all, it will be his heartbeat for eternity future. This means then that God could not wait to send his son into the world to save us. God has amazing patience because this was his plan in eternity past. I'm gonna send you, son, to save these fallen people and they'll be my gift to you, son, and they'll get swept up in the love that I have for you, son, and now we gotta wait 10 billion more years. And God's waiting and waiting until the right time, Paul says in Galatians 4, Jesus came God could not wait to send his son into this world to save you. Personalize it this morning, Grace. God could not wait for all of eternity to send his son into this world to save you. He waited for all of eternity to buy you out of the slave market of sin. That means then, as we dwell on this truth that we should remind ourselves of this. Don't run away from home. Don't run away from your father when you're burdened with the guilt of your sin. Jesus came to save sinners just like you and me through his life and death. And then God raised him from the dead, Peter says, so that now our hope and our faith are in his son, Jesus God has waited for all of eternity to redeem you, Christian. That means you don't have to run from him in the middle of your mess. God will not abandon you because of your mess, because of your failures, because of your sin. He waited forever to redeem you, to free you, to liberate you, out of the slave market of sin. That's freedom. And that's why we are free. That's why we are liberated. We are free now to run into his presence because our faith and our hope are now in him. And yet we get discouraged over our sin, don't we? Of course we do. And we should. We should hate our sin. We should put it to death, mortify it, do all those things. But we need to listen to Puritan Richard Sibbs who said this. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Shall our sins really discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Understand this, Grace. This is why Jesus came, because Jesus loves saving sinners. It's his specialty. It's what he does best. He saves sinners. It's his specialty. Jesus is attracted to sinners. He can't keep away from sinners who cry out to him and say, have mercy on me. Like a magnet, he's he's pulled into them like a tractor beam. He's focused in, and he's attracted to messy sinners like you and like me. So when you feel overwhelmed with your sin, run to Jesus. When you feel loaded down with condemnation, run to your Father. That's why Jesus came. When you feel guilty and you are being bombarded with shame, tell yourself this. Better yet, preach this to yourself. Say to yourself, self-weight. 
I'm going to be discouraged. This is why Jesus came. He came for messy sinners like me. He came to free me, to liberate me. He came to buy me back out of the slave market of sin. This is totes cray-cray to be thinking this way. I'm free. I'm free. I don't need to run from him. I need to run to him. And then tell yourself, don't run away from home. When you are burdened with the guilt of your sin, the last thing that God wants is for you to run away from him. The last thing that God wants is for you to run away from home like a little kid. The last thing that God wants for you is to view him as the skeezics. The last thing he wants is for you to run from him. And isn't this what we do? We get burdened by our shame and our guilt, and instead of running to God, we run away. We run away from home when our Father wants us to run to him. The last thing on earth that God desires is for you to run away from him. Why? Because the whole reason he sent his son was so that he would be glorified as he liberates slaves like us from the slave market of sin. That's why Jesus came. And when you run to your father, when you're smelly and stinking of sin, it glorifies his son. Because how in the world are you ever getting into his presence? Because of his son. He wants you there. When you feel the shame and the guilt of your sin, he wants you to run into his presence because it glorifies his son. Because that's why Jesus came. It seems odd to us, like, you actually want me here when I got all this crud in my life? Yes, because the whole reason you're here when you have all the crud in your life is because of my son, and it glorifies him. Jesus came for our sake. He came for his glory, but Peter says he came for our sake. Don't miss that. He came to set us free so that we would run to God, not run from him. And so then, running to God... And feeling the warmth of his fatherly embrace when you are dirty and smelly and stinking of sin, it is the glory of the gospel. So the one who bought you out of the slave market of sin, he wants you. He wants you to run to him. He wants you to do what this little slave girl did. And I've read this story in several books. I'm not sure if it really happened, but it supposedly took place during the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. It's about a northerner, a man who went to a slave auction and he purchased a young slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yep. And even go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, then I will go with you. That's what grace does. It frees you. It frees you to go with Jesus. It frees you to run home to your father. It frees you to go to the one who freed you. As Revelation 1.5 says, to him who has loved us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We can approach his throne boldly because of the promise in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. And let this prepare our hearts to sing the final song. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, you're so merciful and so good to us. And yet, because of our sin, we just struggle to believe that you really are the way that you say you are. We just doubt so much. How could you love us? We choose a million things over you all the time, and yet your love is so steadfast, chases us down. Forgive us. And thank you that we can just rush into your presence right now to find the cleansing and the love and the comfort that we so desperately need. May we be a church who walks in this freedom. May we never grieve your heart, but may we always run into your presence and never run away from you. Help us, we ask. For we are little kids. In Jesus' name, amen.